You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 99, for December 7th, 2016. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk with Tom King, Colorado Shippo Holly Norton, and Michael Ashley from Codify about CRM and the Trump administration and what it means for the profession and for the environment. So go chain yourself to a bulldozer because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today are Bill in Arizona. Good morning. Steven in Calgary. Hello. And Doug in Scotland. Uh, we might not hear too much from Doug today because he's in a, a, a challenging audio situation, but we'll see. Um, so for today's show, uh, a few weeks ago, this is this air, this is airing on December 7th, but just so the listeners know, for our frame of reference, in case there was a you know major event that happened or something, we're recording this the Sunday before Thanksgiving, so... Uh, it's a few weeks before this show airs, but you know we're going to talk about everything that's happened from you know this whole election season, election night, um, and and then on up until today. So we've brought on as a couple of guests uh, a few people to help talk about this uh, this this upcoming uh, presidential administration and what that might mean for not only archaeology but environmental science and, and the environment in general. And our guests are Miss Holly Norton. Holly, how's it going? It's going well, thanks. And we've also got on Tom King. Tom, how's it going? Oh, okay, considering. <laughs> exactly. Um, now, Tom King's been on the show before, um, so I'll let Holly go first. And Holly, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself so the audience has a, has a frame of reference for you. Sure. I'm actually the Colorado State Archaeologist and Deputy State Historic Preservation Officer. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, and Tom, what are, you, what are you doing these days? Oh, well, these days I'm... Um... Not doing very much. I'm working as a consultant. I have a little project in California at the moment, and I'm uh, otherwise just sort of bothering people um, wherever I can. Okay, and then we have a special guest host because uh, he helped me do some field work this weekend. We've been working on some stuff, so he's in the room. Um, but we've got Michael Ashley from Codify. Michael, how's it going? Uh, it's going great. Okay, so let's get into this. Um, Tom, I want to talk to you first. Uh, you were you live near the Capitol. You live in Maryland. Um, what uh, what was your sense, uh, or just just give me your thoughts? You were at the um, I think it's Lafayette Park, across from the White House um, on election night. What is what 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 is your sense of the whole situation? Just from from being there and being in that environment and living where you do, and, and you're you're fairly active in um, you know writing letters to the president and different people. Um, what, why don't you just give us your overview of the the situation as it sits? Well, my overview of the situation, looking at it from the standpoint of the environment, environmental protection, historic preservation, cultural resource management, is we're screwed. Um, yeah. It's pretty pretty simple and straightforward. Uh, exactly how we'll be screwed, how long it's going to take to be screwed, what the experience is going to be like, whether we can enjoy parts of it, uh, yeah, that all remains to be seen. But basically, um, we've really screwed up. Uh, I was not a supporter of Hillary Clinton. Uh, I, was a, I was a Bernie Sanders supporter. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I think the Democratic Party really, really, really made a big mistake. 
But all that said, we're stuck in a situation that I think is going to be extremely difficult. And I should say also that I lived through the Reagan administration as a, <laughs> an employee of the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. And um, I think this is much, much, much worse than the situation we had then. I hope I'm wrong, but I mm -hmm. fear I'm right. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do too. Um, before we move on, Holly, why don't you give us your, your sense of the situation in your own words? Uh, well, I agree completely with Tom. I think that we've already been seeing environmental laws, the NHPA, being really squeezed in a variety of ways. I think that the, um, the Mueller decision that occurred just a couple of weeks before the elections was a, a huge blow to how people perceive um, federal lands and public lands, in, especially in the West. And I think that our entire discipline and industry is going to be completely transformed um, over the next couple of years. Yeah. Um, well, and that's, you guys are totally right. Um, I, I think I, I fully agree with you. And I think other people on this podcast agree with us, agree with you as well. You know, it, I don't even think it's going to help. People are talking about Trump possibly getting impeached, you know, at some point. I think that's probably likely. He's going to open his mouth at the wrong, uh, in the wrong circumstance. It works in an election cycle, but, you know, when they're trying to get elected, it apparently worked to get him elected to say whatever he wanted. But, you know, as the head of state, that's going to really, uh, you know, kind of bite him in the ass, I think, at some point. But he's appointing so many people that will be damaging for uh, for our field and, and environmental, the environment in general, that they're they're not going to go anywhere um, anytime soon. Even if he did get impeached, then we just have Pence, so we're kind of screwed either way. Um, well, let's well, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that Pence isn't any better. I mean, he's yeah. a more polished politician, but he uh, his his entire worldview is so askew from even what a lot of people on the right, I think. <laughs> Although I'm I'm questioning everything I thought I knew about American voters after a Tuesday. Right, right. Well, let's get. Uh, we've got one more uh, guest on the podcast, Michael Ashley. Michael, what are your thoughts on the uh, the upcoming administration and what we've all done to ourselves? <laughs> uh, well, I also lived through other administrations, um, and and I'm definitely kind of terrified for, you know, archaeology, culture, heritage, and all the things that we care about. But I, I also tend to say that we, you know, we need to be active. We need to do stuff. And um, we need to have a positive mental outlook as we move forward as individuals, as organizations. And so I think there's a lot we can do, but we're going to also need to hunker down. <clears throat> so I just wrote this could be the um, this could be the apocalypse. <laughs> nice, nice. All right. Well, in the in the spirit of um, as a as a good segue. Well, before we get into the the, the Facebook group that I want to talk about um, with Holly, uh, Bill, go ahead. Bill, you got a question? Well, I guess my biggest question. I mean, we all have the feeling that um, you know the sky is actually falling, but what do you guys think? specifically the president will do or can do to historic preservation law that will actually destroy our industry. Tom and Holly? Well, okay, let me let me try that. I think um, you, I think you got to distinguish between destroying the industry and destroying the purpose of the industry. 
I am not a big fan, as some people know, I'm not a big fan of the CRM industry as it's now construed. Um, and I think that quite likely the CRM industry could survive in some form or other, just like the environmental assessment industry can survive in some form or another, as long as everybody is willing to be entirely subservient to the interests of uh, development. So, you know, if, you, if you're ready to, to do whatever a client tells you you need to do in order to provide the semblance of um, uh, compliance with whatever is left of environmental laws, then eh, you can probably stay alive. If not, you probably ought to start learning how to flip burgers at McDonald's. Um, that's the, the industry. Um, as to what's going to happen with the purposes of the industry, uh, I think we're going to have real, a real rough time. And if we survive, and I really do mean if we survive, um, not just as, a, as an industry, but as a, as a culture, as a, as a species, then um, we're going to have to rebuild. And there, I think we could rebuild a better system than we've got. That's why I've, if you look at my blog, I've um, advertised I'll pay a thousand bucks for the best plan for a new cultural heritage program post-Trump. Um, I think that's an interesting thing to focus on. Uh, but that's assuming there is a post-Trump, and I'm not confident that there will be. Well, I think in the spirit of Bill's question, Tom, um, what do you think specifically, like uh, what sort of uh, either laws will be enacted or acts will be repealed or something like that that would really have the greatest impact on, on and, and, and accomplish oh, okay. what you're saying? Okay. The first and easiest thing for, for Trump to do, he's got a chairman to appoint for the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. He'll appoint a ringer, um, and the chairman will then make sure that the staff does absolutely nothing to enforce uh, Section 106. Now, the staff has done precious little anyway, so it won't make a big difference, but, but that'll be a start. He'll appoint somebody to head the National Park Service, who will be have a similar effect on the, um, the National Register and the SHPOs and so on. And, and it's the appointments that are going to be the initial uh, wave of um, change. It, there is a good possibility that um, they'll overreach very quickly uh, and screw up so badly that, that everything will fall apart and then we can put it back together again. But it's the appointments that are probably going to be the first thing before anybody starts changing laws, mm -hmm. changing regulations. Just make sure that the laws and regulations aren't attended to in any realistic way. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I hadn't even actually really thought about that too much. Um, Holly, what do you got to say on that? Uh, well, I think that there is going to be, or there potentially can be, some major changes with the laws. We've seen the Military Lands Act come up um, several times over the last several years. Um, this hasn't really been an organized effort. The Military Lands Act, I forget which senators and congressmen support it, but essentially it says that Section 106 doesn't have to be followed if there's a homeland security issue and that 
the federal agency gets to decide that. So mm-hmm. the Park Service, the BLM, the Forest Service, the GSO, they can all decide for themselves whether there is a homeland security need to not have Section 106 occur. Um, this has been defeated, but in this new climate, um, you know, if they keep bringing it up, uh, it could very possibly pass again. There's also been issues under the Obama administration. There was the whole freeze the footprint issue, which has actually affected more the built environment than the archaeological environment. But there's policies like that that are already in place that a Trump administration can very quickly and immediately push forward. Right now we're in an oil and gas downturn, which might buy us some time. But those are very savvy people who are going to glom onto these laws or these policies that are already in place and try to push them further. Doug, go ahead. So um, just along those lines, it's worth worth mentioning that there already has been some legislation that's been put in um, that has allowed that exemption. So one of them was 2005. They exempted anything to do with the border. Um, and so I know a lot of people have been talking about Trump's wall. Um, though it is interesting to note, and I, I know this has sort of been going around, and I've seen a lot of Facebook and Twitter, is a lot of archaeologists have been very concerned that the wall will decimate um, lots of archaeological sites. And actually, it's not the wall that we have to worry about. It's all the support roads because um, that takes up much more territory than anything else. Um, but actually, with the exemption, I don't know if anyone remembers, but Bush built a fence um, on the border. And actually, the Bush administration um, did all the, even though they are exempt, still did all the archaeology and environmental um, work for that. And that's, uh, I mean, they're, they're having complaints about the quality of that work and stuff. But I did the New Mexico um, part of that. And the work was done quite well. And we actually learned quite a bit about areas that we hadn't, well, there hadn't been work there because there's no people there. Because um, it's in the middle of nowhere. Um, but in a sense, even if they do do those exemptions, organiz- some government organizations may decide to still go forward with um, historical or environmental, um, you know, what we currently do. Mm-hmm. The quality of it may be variable and that, you know, it'll sort of be a hit or miss, but just because they make an exemption doesn't mean that the government won't go through with it anyways. Um, it just means that it's a lot easier for them to ignore it if they want to. Um, so just a comment on that. Well, in, in reference to the wall real quick, and maybe, maybe Tom and Holly have some other information on this. Um, there's been some relatively lighthearted, uh, I think, in an attempt to make it lighthearted, joking on Facebook that, hey, at least the wall will give us, uh, you know, one last big project to do as, as uh, archaeologists because of all the, all the construction that would take place along the border. However, I've heard people say, and, and I don't actually know the answer to this, and I, I don't think it's true, but I've heard people say that um, because of the fact that it's uh, some sort of national security thing and where the wall is, that there actually wouldn't be any uh, Section 106 work done on that on those projects, but I don't think that's uh, true uh, personally. I mean, I've worked on military bases where national security is an issue and things like that, and they still do Section 106 and, and Section 110 and things like that. So uh, 
I would imagine uh, if the wall were built, that that would have to happen. Yeah, Doug. Well, no, Chris, it's exempt. So there is, I mean, it was a 2005 law. Um, I'll, I'll have to look it up again, but yeah. it is exempt, but it's already been done. So, and, you know, they've been talking about the wall when Trump first mentioned it was 2000 miles. And then actually people kind of forget this back in October during the Republican primaries, you cut it down to a thousand. And then just last week, the border, like not last week, like two or three days ago, um, one of Trump's surrogates from the border patrol had cut that down to like 400 miles of, of actual wall. And where they put the wall are areas where they already have the fence. So in a sense, most of the sites have already either been dug out when they put the fence in, and most of the roads have already been surveyed. I mean, obviously, when you do archaeology, you do it again because you'll find something new every time. But in a sense, the damage to archaeology is going to be limited, even if they still go forward with the exemptions, because they can. Anything that's uh, related to the border wall is already exempt, and it's been exempt for 11 years now. Mm-hmm. Well, and of yeah, course, and- go ahead, Tom. Well, yeah, and you guys are looking at it, as usual, entirely as archaeologists. Yeah, we can dig up the artifacts. Yeah, we've dug up the artifacts. That is not Section 106. That is not NEPA. That is digging up the artifacts. That is doing some archaeology. Maybe it's good archaeology. Maybe it's bad archaeology. But it doesn't have anything to do with uh, proper environmental impact assessment or, I would say, proper cultural resource management. But... There, there's my rant. Well, it's good, Tom. I was going to mention uh, the same thing, uh, and partially because of conversations we've had with you, uh, because it's uh, it's not just about the the sites that are right there. A wall will have a different, um, will look different, and will have it will be taller, it will be bigger, and it will have a greater visual impact um, if we just even brought that in on sites that are not necessarily right under the influence of the construction, and you have to take those impacts into uh, into account, of course. So, all right. Well, this is great. Uh, A good start to the discussion. We're going to go to break real quick. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Holly about the Archaeologists Against Trump Facebook group and what they are trying to accomplish with with their efforts. But for now, listen to this ad from Codify.com. Back in a second. Let's face it. The quality of archaeological field photography could really use some improvement. We aim to change this with the Codify Magic Photo Board. This lightweight but incredibly durable board is designed to help you take color-perfect photos of artifacts, features, and sites using almost any camera, even your smartphone. You need to see it to believe it. Engineered from exceptional quality, color-safe, high-pressure laminate, Codify Magic Photo Board is ready for tough field conditions. It's guaranteed to level up your photography. Start taking publication-worthy photos right in the field with the Codify Magic Photo Board. Available now for pre-order, visit codify.com slash APN. That's codifi.com forward slash APN today and get your promo code exclusively for listeners of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Okay, we're back. And before we throw it to Holly to talk about the Facebook group, Tom, uh, you mentioned in the at the end of the last segment, we were talking about how uh, in reference to the wall and, and really any archaeology project, how Section 106 is not just about digging up artifacts like us archaeologists are fond of uh, fond of doing. It's not just about the sites. It's not just about artifacts right there. Um, it's more than that. So if you could elaborate just a little bit on, on what you mean by that. Well, what I mean is Section 106 is about finding out what impacts there will be on historic places. And under NEPA, we're talking about cultural resources besides historic places. 
and then trying to do something about it, trying to actually work with people to alleviate whatever impacts they're going to be. And it's all very well for archaeologists to go out and, and dig up sites. And it's all very well even for ethnographers to go out and interview people about what, what kind of plants are going to be affected and so on. But if you don't do anything about it, if you don't actually try to ameliorate the uh, impacts, then you're really not accomplishing anything. And it may very well be that, that uh, for a while anyway, the administration will continue to pat folks like archaeologists on the head and say, yeah, guys, go out and do your studies, make yourselves happy. But if that doesn't result in anything that actually preserves anything, there are problems. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, on the border fence, you've got the Tohono O'odham saying, you'll build that wall over our dead bodies. And so you're likely to have a real serious issue there. We've not talked about DAPL, but that's another whole situation where we're likely to have, uh, I think people are going to get killed over D DAPL. And uh, this is all going to um, result in some very interesting um, <laughs> conflicts. Mm -hmm. Stephen? So um, just to kind of explore that a little bit more, yeah. Uh, trying to th think of how to put this. Uh, so as far as like the level of mitigation go, um, how, how do you... I guess, how do you determine what is an appropriate level of mitigation, you know, be, be, besides the vaguely worded, like, good faith effort? Uh, um, you know, well, for heaven's sake. Doing, what? I, I mean, that is what the Section 106 process is all about, is getting people to sit down together and work out what the appropriate thing to do is. As Holly is saying, consultation, with a big capital K. Um, <laughs> and we've what one of the ironic things about this election is that what pissed people off and caused so many people to vote for Trump is that they have not been consulted, not on Section 106 stuff, but on everything. We've had an elitist government that's been been figuring out what to do and telling people what's going to be done to them. And people are pissed off at that. And they reacted badly, I think, by electing Trump. Um, in our little world, it's the same kind of thing. We've long had a quote-unquote cultural resource management program that basically is about paying archaeologists to go find things and dig them up. And as a result, we have rather limited support, rather limited public support, and rather limited potential for survival, I think. The Section 106 process and the NEPA process are supposed to be about finding out what impacts are going to occur, talking to people about them, and trying to come up with solutions. And those solutions are negotiated solutions. And I think that's what we're going to lose for, for quite a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed. Um, Bill, Bill, you were commenting on this. Did you have anything to add to this? Well, I can say, well, first of all, um, Tom's exactly right. And in the situations where uh, cultural resources is conducted in conjunction with Native people, uh, excellent things end up happening. Uh, one example that I'd like to point out, of course, I have to, I have to uh, preface this with the fact that the lady who 
uh, helped bring this to uh, fruition, Maria Nieves-Cedeno is my advisor here at Arizona. But she uh, was part of a team of people who worked with the Blackfeet to identify a traditional cultural landscape around the Badger II medicine drainage uh, in Montana. And as a result, because they created that, um, that landscape, it went a long way towards convincing the government that they should suspend oil and gas leases uh, in the vicinity of this area. Now, what's important to note is this is like right on the edge of Glacier National Park. So people could have been coming and hiking to, you know, high what's left of our glaciers in Glacier National Park and then look out on a blazing oil field um, if they hadn't have gotten back those uh, oil leases. But, you know, the Blackfeet worked for decades on this. Uh, Dr. Zedaniel worked for years and years on this. And she was she came as part of a, a second or maybe even third round of anthropologists and archaeologists uh, who had been working on this for a long time. And just this last week, we found out that the... Um, state of Montana had uh, suspended all but two of these gas leases. So 15 are gone, two are left, and it's unlikely that they'll be able to develop that stuff. And now that came through what uh, Tom was talking about, a long process of negotiating with uh, the Blackfeet, with the National Park Service, with the tribal government, going and identifying places, recording uh, ethnographic interviews, identifying sites, um, talking about the cultural value of this thing. It took years and years, but in the end, they were able to create something that's not beneficial to the gas and oil industry, right? So in this world that we're living in, as far as what I'm uh, hearing, that's probably going to go away. And there might be a little bit more of paying archaeologists to dig things up or paying anthropologists to go and look for plants and to talk to Native people. However, if it conflicts with business interests or uh, the Department of Defense, it's probably nothing's going to end up happening, right? Uh, so there are examples of awesome consultation and, and great results for the people who live in that area. Uh, I also am of, of the opinion that that might go away unless we push really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So, Michael, Mike, what are your thoughts on this? Um, a couple of quick things. For for one, um, I understand. I mean, there, there are challenges when we are working with uh, consultation uh, kind of as archaeologists to uh, tribal nations, for sure. But um, in the last five years, I've been working very directly with tribal nations directly here in the U.S. and, and abroad. Um, and there's a lot of action, a lot of activity happening um, and and a lot of will to make pretty major changes. And, and so it's going to be more difficult, I think, for the Trump administration to eviscerate the um, right of 567 tribal nations. Um, so there are some kind of advantages from working from within tribal nations toward archaeology. Um, and so just a couple of adv- examples here. Um, first of all, let's just move down to Australia where you know, a, an, administ- an administration change came in several years ago and it basically eviscerated archaeology as they know it, basically erasing about 90% of, of sites that were protected were suddenly not. And it has effectively destroyed the CRM industry um, in uh, in Australia. But what's risen up is is native title, and a lot of the archaeology has been moved towards and into um, uh, Aboriginal uh, groups there, and and um, and has actually been quite effective. So, um, from my experience working in California with the Karuk tribe and um, the Federated Indians, Great Rancheria, 
there's a lot of, of desire and interest in not just being doing, you know, doing things like cultural monitoring or consultation, but, but actually, actually doing the archeology span um, and, and being much more involved. So um, in, listen, in hearing uh, the responses I'm getting from, from folks from within tribes, um, no one is sitting down and everyone's trying to do stuff. But I, I wanna also say quickly um, to respond to what Tom said, I think that what we're seeing with the pipeline is, is seriously terrifying. Um, and and I, I agree that I think we may see not just violence, but also, um, you know, bloodshed. It really could happen. So I would definitely like to hear more about that from you guys. Holly? So I agree that there is a lot of will to have um, good tribal consultation, to have tribes involved, to really have them driving the process. And that's an internal will. The problem that I'm seeing, and, and this doesn't go across all tribal groups, but there's not the funds to do that. So TIPOs are funded differently than SHIPOs. They get a very small piece of the pie. They often have um, very, very small cultural um, groups within their tribes who are trying to manage both whatever is on their tradition as well as what's on the land. And increasingly, what I've been hearing from a lot of my tribal partners is they are frustrated that the federal government doesn't have more money to bring them along to do things like monitoring or to have them do some of these other activities that in consultation they say they want to do to help ameliorate the effects on their sites. Um, so the will is there, but the actual logistics for ensuring that Native American groups can have more control and more say over these um, properties and within these projects, I don't think exists right now. And I think that that's probably going to go, go away pretty quickly um, with this administration. Bill. Holly, how do you think that cultural resource management people can fix our relationship with tribes and fix consultation consultation? You know, that's a question that we deal with almost every day in our office. Um, I think it just takes, it takes active relationship building. Building relationships with tribal partners is different than building relationships with a federal agency or even with a local community stakeholder, although sometimes it can be similar. Um, it just, it takes active listening. It takes actually talking to people, actually hearing what their needs and wants and desires are, and then being honest about how much power you have to meet those needs and wants and desires. You know, I've, I've actually had some, some very good relationship building with people just by saying, you know, I understand that you would like to see this outcome. I can't get us there. I can get us to this outcome or I can help to get us, you know, somewhere in between. But in all honesty, I can't achieve X. And even just that kind of honesty and sincerity about what our, what our um, limitations are as, you know, state employees, as, a CRM company as a federal employee, it really goes a long way. You know, along those lines, um, I've been I've been thinking. You know, we, we move forward with this Trump administration. He makes all the appointments we think he's going to make, and uh, and some we already know about. And and of course, three weeks into the future, when this actually airs, 
there will probably be some more revelations, but um, is there a way, uh, I mean, if everything from the federal level really starts affecting us negatively, is there anything we can do from the state level? It, because I love, you know, Holly, regardless of what happens in the administration, if we start making these relationships, uh, in, you know, strengthening these relationships with tribes and, and other affected groups, you know, if things start changing negatively on the federal level, Will will those will it will we still be able to do stuff if we have um, these relationships with the tribes, um, even if we don't maybe have the regulatory framework to back it up? Because I'm thinking California with CEQA, and you know that's probably not going to go away anytime soon, um, even if the federal regulations change. And I guess what I'm saying is, uh, with these tribal um, tribal relationships and then relationships with the state, you know, you working with Shippo, does that? Uh, do you think you'll see see more state regulations pop up if the federal government isn't going to be is it going to be playing ball? Well, I think almost every state has some sort of regulatory framework of their own in place. Um, you know, obviously it's going to vary from state to state. Mm-hmm. Um, different, you know, tribes vary from state to state. Um, some tri- states don't even have any sec- federally recognized tribes within their borders mm-hmm. to build relationships with. But yes, absolutely. Okay. At the end of the day, even with our federal regulations, all of this stuff is local. So when that federal umbrella starts to fall apart, we strengthen it with our communities, with our tribal partners, with our local legislatures. Um, and, and that's how we really keep the protections that we all want to see on these historic properties alive. Okay, and, and Tom, I'll throw that same same question to you. You you started this podcast out by saying that we're screwed uh, <laughs> for at least the next four years, and and probably having long term effects, even if Trump, you know, that he's a one term president. Which God, I hope so. But anyway, um, do you think that strengthening these community ties and 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 maybe beefing up existing state regulations and things like that will actually will actually have an impact, or do you think that uh, ultimately we're all headed in the same direction. Well, I think I think trying to strengthen strengthen state ties, strengthen ties with communities, strengthen ties with tribes is a good idea under any circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, how that's going to play out vis-a-vis the federal system, how effective it's going to be, it's it's just very very hard to say. And and the great problem is that once you begin to set precedents at the federal level, they tend to reverberate through the states, through the localities, and so on. The tribes are an interesting new player in the system. I know they've been around for a long time, but in terms of playing in the environmental and historic preservation game, they've really been active only since the 1980s. And that is going to make their participation is going to be important, I think, exactly what it's going to mean is is another question. Um, one, one thing I wanted to ask Holly, uh, it, it's been my perception that a lot of the reasons that tribes have trouble relating to the, the cultural resource system, the environmental impact system, is that they have to work with respect to federal, well, federal, not necessarily rules, but practices that are very, very difficult for any kind of ordinary human being to relate to. Um, Hundreds and hundreds of letters that land on the desk of a THPO that are all written in bizarre language that 
that no ordinary human can understand. And the perception that they have to process every damn letter, uh, partly as a result of the strictures the Park Service lays on both SHPOs and THPOs. Am I wrong in thinking that that's part of the problem? No, not at all. I think that is part of the problem. I think that's part of the problem for our community stakeholders as well. Um, you know, little historical societies or a neighborhood that that isn't um, educated in this bureaucracy. I mean, it's a heavy bureaucracy. I think a part of the problem for a lot of Native American tribes too, um, as you know, Tom, a lot of federal agencies don't necessarily follow the four-step process of Section 106. Mm -hmm. So by the time that they're getting these stacks of letters on their desks, decisions have already been made that the federal agencies are sometimes um, presenting as, this is how we're moving forward, can we get your stamp of approval? And, and that's not necessarily fair. I'm sure I'm going to have some federal colleagues who listen to this who are going to send me some angry phone calls. <laughs> but I, I think oftentimes, um, from what I've been told from, from tribes, they feel precluded from the actual decision-making process. Hmm. Yeah, and that's the, the DAPL case is a good example of that, where, yes, there's Absolutely. been consultation, but it's been consultation about the things that the... <laughs> that the core has recognized, not what they nobody has sat down with the tribe at the very beginning and said, look, guys, we want to do this thing. What do you think of it? Uh, it's been here. We want to put this line in this position. Give us your comments so we can ignore them. Right. OK, well, uh, I, exactly. I, I, I promised you guys we'd talk about the uh, the Facebook group that's gaining steam in this segment. That was a complete live. We're going to do it next segment and we're going to open with that next segment so we can talk about what. Um, what we can maybe do as a as a group to to influence some of these decisions. In the meantime, um, uh, during the break, listen to this business tip from Heritage Business International, and we'll be back shortly. Hi everyone, this is Christopher Dorr with Heritage Business International, and here is this week's Heritage Business Tip from the archive. This week, we look at how you set your price for your services. Many heritage organizations charge a profit as a percent of their cost to do a project. Why? In most industries, the market determines the price of a service independently of what it costs to perform it. Break the habit of tacking on a fixed percentage of profit to your total after you have calculated the cost of a project. Sometimes, as with many jobs for government clients, you are forced into a fixed percentage fee. When you are not, though, set your price based upon market conditions. You will soon find that Heritage clients generally value your worth more than you do. To receive our most up-to-date Heritage business tips, you can subscribe to our free weekly email at heritagebusiness.org. Until next time, this is Christopher Dorr. Okay, we're back, and we've talked a lot about what the problems are. We've ta talked a lot about um, a, a little bit about how we can mitigate the Trump administration from our own standpoint. You know, maybe it's beefing up state regulations. You know, better consultation with tribes. Obviously, even any administration that has to be a thing. And uh, and we're trying to there. There is a group of people trying to do um, trying to do some activism and and trying to make this 
make this all work in, in whatever way we can. And Holly is part of one of those groups on Facebook called Archaeologists Against Trump. And if you go there and find it, we can get you added. But uh, there's a lot of good things going on there. And specifically, there's a couple different, uh, I think, three different actions right now taking place. So, Holly, why don't you first tell us a little bit about the group and then what the actions that have already taken place and that are taking place now. Great. Um, yeah, so this is a group that was started by Barb Voss, and she started it during the campaign um, as a way to kind of mobilize people and to encourage them not to vote for Donald Trump. Um, I think after the election, it took on a bit of a different direction right? and a, and a different bit of urgency. So I, I was a member of it prior to the election, um, just you know, another little Facebook group that I had signed up onto. Um, I liked what Barb had to say and, and what some of the other folks were saying. Um, after the election, I woke up that Wednesday morning and um, I had a, a brief heart attack knowing that the Historic Preservation Fund was still sitting out there unauthorized. Mm-hmm. And I felt like maybe that was something that we could do in the face of impending doom to... Um, Sorry to interrupt you, but before we go on too far, too much farther, I've seen people ask on Facebook what the Historic Preservation Fund is. Why don't you let us know just for our listeners that might not be aware of it? Yeah, absolutely. So the Historic Preservation Fund is a fund that is, um, well, I'm going to use the F word yet again, funded by oil and gas leases on public lands. Mm-hmm. And all that money goes to shippos and tippos and to supporting activities that are within the National Historic Preservation Act. So it's been unfunded since 2015, um, or it's been unauthorized since 2015. Okay. All right. So uh, go ahead and continue with what we're doing to, to get that reauthorized. Yeah. So we have a petition. We actually hit 2,000 signatures yesterday. And we've also had a lot of activity around people calling their um, senators, it, it needs to go through the Senate, it's already been through the House, mm-hmm. um, calling their senators, sending letters. I believe that on Friday there was 19 different anthropology and archaeology departments across the country that did nice. phone banging for this. So there's, there's really been a lot of activity, and um, Herb really picked it up on archaeologists against Trump, and through that network and through social media, um, really kind of encouraged people to take a look at this and take this on as an action that they could complete and kind of have a, a sense of catharsis about today instead of this, instead of just kind of a, a generic idea of how mm-hmm. do we fight Trump in the coming years. Right. Now, as, as all things do, you know, we're, we're humans and we tend to equalize um, the way that we the way that we deal with things. So there's a lot of activity in the Archaeologists Against Trump Facebook group the few days after the election. Maybe people were like, yeah, yeah, okay, before that. But then after that, I think it gained, uh, I don't know how many members it has now, but a lot. But it gained a ton of members that week um, after the election. But in order to keep this momentum going, um, because people, like I said, we get... We get apathetic with stuff, and we just get used to the, quote, new normal, and and then just move on with our lives and hope it'll all be for the best. And then there's those few people that'll keep things going and try to keep people motivated. So um, do you, are there anything, is there anything planned in the future um, in, in, in an effort to do that, to keep people going? Like, what's, what's after the phone bank? Now, this may have already happened since this is, you know, December 7th that we're playing this podcast, but what, what, what's, what's next in the planning stages? Well, we're actually talking about that right now. So Barb has a 
list of action items that you can do right now to kind of prepare yourself for future actions. Loading up your representatives into your phone so that you can contact them. Knowing your rights. Um, she has links to uh, ACLU and some other resources so that people know what their, their legal rights are in different circumstances and conditions. And then we have a lot of conversations going on right now about how we keep momentum going and how we identify specific actions that people can do. Mm -hmm. um, and a part of that is if other people have ideas, if something happens that people are, are organizing against, that this group is a resource because we have so many members to um, help fulfill whatever that need is, whether it's signing petitions, whether it's making calls, you know, this is a group that is kind of ready and mobilized to do those things. Mm -hmm. Okay. Tom, what do you think about all this? Um, I don't know if you're part of that group or not, but what do you think the effectiveness of these sorts of actions are? Well, you know, I, I understand the, the, desire to reauthorize the Historic Preservation Fund. Uh, I have an article that I published about a month ago called Let's, um, Let's Repeal the National Historic Preservation Act because I had come to, to the conclusion long before the election that it had become so ineffective, so counterproductive, that, would be, that we would be better off to do away with it and start over. Mm -hmm. And the one sort of bright spot I see on the Trump horizon is that, yeah, yeah, we may be getting exactly that. So I'm not much of a supporter personally of um, reauthorizing the Historic Preservation Fund, reauthorizing the SHPOs, reauthorizing the program. I think maybe we have to go through the catharsis of getting rid of the existing programs in order to build something that works better. I think I'm probably... Um, well, I'm, I'm definitely a very small minority on that, and I am way out in left field. But so I'm, I'm not a member of the, um, of the archaeologists against Trump, and I'm, I'm not likely to be. Um, but I understand the, the interest in, in being part of it, and I think it's, uh, it's certainly positive in its own way. Uh, what I'm doing is trying to look beyond the Trump administration and ask people, okay, assuming everything is blown away, what should we build anew? What would be a good program um, in the future, not modeled on the existing one? And that's what I've talked about on my blog and um, am giving a prize for. Mm -hmm. Well, what do you think, Tom, are, are some of the some of the highlights that we should have in a new uh, regulatory framework that just uh, either don't exist now or, or maybe should be modifying ones that do exist. Cause you say not based on what we have now, but what we have now is, is what is the only thing anybody knows really uh, that works right. in this industry. So what, what do you think are some of the big things that would be changed? Well, I don't want to say a lot about that because I think frankly, I'm too old. Um, <laughs> and I think most of us are too old, too set in our ways and all we know how to do is what we know how to do. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm saying, look, I'll give a thousand bucks to to the best example, the best description that somebody can come up with, and I'm hoping this will attract a lot of millennials, mm -hmm. come up with uh, something that works better. And um, so I really don't want to say, all I would say is get the rid of the goddamn National Register. 
and get the whole program out from under the National Park Service. Um, beyond that, um, I'm, I'm, that's as far as I'll go. Well, I hope, I hope that if they do, you know, repeal NHPA um, in the Trump administration or something like that, I hope we survive the interim between that and something else actually, actually popping up. Um, <laughs> that's, that's my only fear. Uh, if this were some other administration, maybe we would survive it and something else would pop up that would be better, but we might have to wait a little while for that to happen. Holly, what are your thoughts on, on Tom's comments? I think that there are problems with the NHPA. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that it's the only thing we have. And I think an out-and-out repealing of it would be disastrous for our historic resources. I think that there are ways for us as a community, as, a, as professionals, to talk about how we would make it better, um, different things that we can do going forward. Um, this is the 50th anniversary of the NHPA. And I think that people have been trying to have some of those conversations I think it would be a shame if this rogue administration is what derailed those conversations. I also, I'm, I'm, I'd be interested to know, although I'm, I'm sure you've written about it on your blog, Tom, about exactly what about the National Register um, you, you don't like because it's kind of popular among some of the public. I mean, it's, the National Register is, is a really nice program that we have. And it again, it has some issues, but I, I would never want to see it done away with. Well, I would, um, and I've actually written a number of things about that on my blog and elsewhere. I think that it's it's a great sacred cow, but um, I know that people in the public like it. But I think that's one of its problems. Um, anyway, I, that's a whole other other discussion. All I would say is that you know when I. When I lived through the Reagan administration, as one of the senior officials in the advisory council, um, one thing I found was that if you just cast historic preservation in a slightly different light, you could get support from the Reaganites. And part of what we did in that, during that period, we, we saved the 106 regulations and made them more publicly oriented than they had been before, more consultatively consultative than they had been before. And it was possible to make a case for that with the Reagan people. I don't know that that's possible with the, with the Trumpsters, but I think we got to look at models that are different from the ones that we're accustomed to that have been basically democratic models developed starting during the Johnson administration that we've lived with and become accustomed to ever since. Um, and I know that's not very, very specific, but um, I just think we really have to look more broadly. Mm-hmm. I just feel like the thing that we always get hung up on is people forget that there are Fifth Amendment constitutional rights for private property. And so whatever model we have, whatever model we have has to be focused on federal lands, public lands, with the, a carrot like the National Register to bring private property along. I, I don't know how we get past that private property ethos and paradigm that we have entrenched in our Constitution in the U.S. Well, I'll send you my article on listless preservation, uh, listless cultural resource management, because I think that that's, there, are, there are plenty of ways to do it. We don't, we don't need lists. Okay. 
<laughs> let's uh I, i'm gonna move this forward just a little bit um holly i want to bring it back to the uh facebook group uh for one more question about that um it, you as you said the group was formed um during the uh during the run-up to the election and i think the the sensible name um that barb that barb came up with archaeologist against trump was fine for that but now that we're moving forward and we're moving on you know, there's talk in the group of changing the privacy level, which, okay, that's a conversation, but I think the group should probably change its name to something a little more um, positive and forward thinking. Um, have you guys talked about that at all and, and, and talked about how we can change it to something that's more of a force for good than just instantly starting a little bit negative? Um, probably rightly so, but still comes off a little bit negative. Yeah, well, and I think you're correct that politically when you say that you're against, you know, in this case, Trump or against anything – you kind of um, pre-select who your audience is, and that's not <laughs> the intention for this group. Right. Uh, yeah, so there is co- there is conversation about that. So one of the things about this group is it's, it's very democratic. It's very egalitarian. So Barb is taking many, many suggestions, and mm-hmm. she will be putting out um, a poll to see – know which suggestions are the most popular and how we move forward. Mm-hmm. Okay. The um, privacy has already changed. It's already a closed oh. group. I think there were people who were afraid of um, tr- of trolls and, and other um, repercussions from having a completely public group. Yeah, I, I could see that. And I, I had some some comments on that. I, I encourage other all people to just go at least find the group, um, especially just in case the name changes, go find it now because it's easy to find, but, uh, and, and join in the conversation. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so one thing, uh, one thing that Michael and I are involved in here, you know, with Codify is, is, and, and the Center for Digital Archaeology, um, and also this other, the other thing that we're involved with is professional certifications for scientists is training. And I think that, I think that now more than ever, we need to have a bigger focus on education, not only for archaeologists about all these issues. So, you know, Tom can rest easy at night, you know, after we're all done with this, knowing that we're not just out digging up artifacts, we're actually assessing impacts from multiple angles, (laughs) like we're supposed to be doing, Um, at least until he gets the NHPA repealed. And then there's something else that says what we're supposed to be doing. So um, I, I think training and education are, are incredibly important on this. And Michael, why don't you speak just a little bit to what um, what Codify is bringing up in the next month? This isn't an ad or a commercial. It's just a, 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 a real quick plug for some, some really good training that's coming up in a way for people to, to, to really participate from an, from an educational standpoint. Because if we're educated, we can educate the people around us and, and help everybody through the process. Yeah, I mean, basically... Um... When I woke up on Wednesday morning, um, even with all the work we're doing uh, around, um, you know, trying to build paperless archaeology things and whatnot, um, I just wanted to stop everything I was doing and 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 figure out how to leverage the um, the seminar that uh, Acro is going to be doing, which will have already happened by the time this uh, particular podcast comes out, and uh, started reaching out to people across the country. Um, to see if they wanted to have, you know, conversations about exactly like we're doing now with a conversation of five or six people and how to how to expand that out. And so what came out of that was, you know, Chris and myself and others reaching out to the, our, our societies and, and organizations. I reached out to Barb Voss and, um, and asked about various ways we can do this. So what we're trying to do at Center for Digital Archaeology, a 501 nonprofit, is going to be providing, you know, training. Uh, we've, we've, we just launched the program last week and it's already 
Uh, we're getting phenomenal response to it because you know SAA provides training, um, RPA provides training. There's all these different types of training we're providing. What we're trying to do is look at, um, you know, it's not good enough to wait till after the Trump administration goes away, if it does, um, to what we can be doing now. And so we were at the Southeast Archaeology Conference um, at the end of October and did a photogrammetry workshop and it was completely full. And you know, the, the students are very much engaged. That was before the election. And so now there's a bit of despondence and concern for everyone, whether you're a, a you know, a a, a, a shovel bum, a, a professor, and everyone in between, all of us who are working across the board. So we're looking at trying to provide kind of an open office hour with different topics so you can learn all sorts of different things, but we can have conversations like this. Um, I know that Bill was mentioning, hey, maybe we should figure out some way of doing a, a webinar on, on, the, on the pipeline. And so we, we can, all we're trying to do is provide the venue to make it possible and happen. Um, and you know, if and for those things, for actual workshops that have um, costs involved, and, and all those proceeds go to making more of these things happen. But generally, um, our our objective at digitaltraining.site um, is to just get this thing going and to kind of continue to raise the bar for all of us and and keep hope alive. So that's where we're at. And um, any and all ideas are welcome, and and participation is welcome. So far. As we've been reaching out to to um, organizations that provide training um, and advocate advocacy across the country, we've gotten excellent and positive responses to it. So it's definitely time to do it. Um, there are lots of ways that this is going, but we're going to be just another way to get it done. Awesome. Okay. So as we wrap up this show, um, Holly, do you have any final thoughts on what we've talked about today? Uh, yeah, actually, I just want to follow up on on that because I think that's perfect. I think that we have a lot of work to do, um, but we've always had a lot of work to do. We have not mm -hmm. been working within conditions that um, have been ideal for us as archaeologists or as anthropologists and, and social scientists. We work within our strengths, and we support other people who are working within their strengths, and together we're going we're gonna to get it done, and we will weather the Trump administration, and we will protect cultural resources. Awesome. Tom, do you have any final thoughts on what we've talked about today? Yeah, just briefly. Um, one, I'm not sure how training is going to be done because I don't know what, what the hell we're going to train if the regulations are being taken apart. But be all that as it may, in the middle of the Reagan administration, when there was a serious attack on all the SHPOs, on there weren't any THPOs at the time, but the, boy, the SHPOs were going to get wiped out, fund was going to get wiped out, the 106 process was going to be wiped out. I woke up one night and I said to myself, you have got to learn not to be ethical. You have got to learn to throw away all moral compunction and fight these motherfuckers any way you can find. And I did. And I can't even tell you all the ways that I found. But mm -hmm. it is what you got to do. And I, I would... I'm too old to do it now, but I will tell everybody that you just got to learn to think outside boxes, including legal, legal boxes, and figure out anything you can do to make things happen. And um, mm -hmm. that, that's sort of my, my lesson. Awesome. Well, I think those are great words to end the show on. Uh, you know, think outside the box, think outside the legal framework and and try to make this uh, try to find a way to make this work for everybody. So 
Thanks everybody for joining us this week. And uh, thanks especially to Tom, Holly, and Michael for joining us um, as guests. And we will see you guys in the field. Thanks. Thank you. It's been fun. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Podcast. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for the episode. You can also email me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag CRMArcPodcast or you can tag at ArcPodNet in your tweet. Please share the link to the show wherever you saw it. If you share CRM archaeology-related items on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else for that matter, be sure to use the hashtag CRMARC so the community can see and comment. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Also, please consider donating to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Your donations help fund our bandwidth and contribute to our editing costs. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Goodbye. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.